Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanante. We hope you enjoy this episode, which provides a review of healthcare in America from the 1930s to the present. Welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. This is Mike Passanante. Glad you could be with us today. Today I'm joined by John Dalton, who's an advisor emeritus here at Bessler Consulting and a longtime board member of St. Joseph's Healthcare System in Patterson, New Jersey. John's had quite a storied career in healthcare finance, and he's taken on a, um, a project uh, to sort of illuminate the history of healthcare reform in the United States. And over a three-part series here, John is going to share with us uh, that information and some of the revelations and some of the surprising things uh, that have come out of healthcare reform throughout the United States and, and our long history. So, John, welcome. Nice to be here, Mike. So, John, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to take on this project. Well, in January 2015, uh, the CEO and board chair at St. Joe's asked me to chair a newly formed strategic planning committee. Uh, and as part of that process, we wanted to be open and inclusive, so we set up a rather large committee with work groups, including a lot of our chiefs and chairs and community physicians and the like. And as part of that process, to introduce them to strategic planning, uh, we decided it might be a good idea to give them some background. So since I've been around a long time um, and involved in a lot of the reform initiatives, I put together a presentation for the, uh, for the committee and the work groups to really walk them through how we got to where we are today uh, in terms of financing the healthcare delivery system. What surprised me was for many of the docs, this was kind of a revelation because they're, while they're great on the clinical side, they really had no idea of how the whole financing mechanisms had developed over the last uh, 80 or 90 years. So let's, let's start at the beginning then. We'll call this part one. All Americans were uninsured. So there was a time in the country where there, there really wasn't formal health insurance. And, and so I think your presentation starts out in the 1930s. So why don't you take us yeah. to that time and tell us a little bit about uh, how Americans lived and, and how health insurance operated then. Right at, at the time I was born in 1938, there was uh, only some formative health, health insurance issues beginning. But if you go back to the Great Depression and immediately following the Great Depression, if you needed health care in the United States, you relied either on a municipal hospital or one of the religious hospitals and uh, they took whatever you had the ability to pay. Uh, in my instance, we were fortunate that I was born in Jersey City where the Margaret Haig Maternity Hospital was New Jersey's biggest baby factory. Uh, Mom delivered in November 1938. She got to have a full week of postpartum stay. Uh, my late twin brother and I were six weeks premature, so we ended up staying for about six weeks. And we basically were covered by the, uh, the city. There was, there was no charge for the services. Um, the 30s were tough. Uh, the unemployment in the U.S. Uh, peaked at 20, 25%. Uh, people didn't have jobs, resources. Uh, we're fortunate to be in a place like Jersey City. The, the Margaret Haig, just to put in perspective, opened in 1931, gorgeous Art Deco building, part of the Jersey City Medical Center. From the time it opened in 31 until it closed in 1979, 350,000 babies were born there. So most anybody who comes from Jersey City was born at The Hague. Uh, to put that in perspective, 
that's an average of 9,200 babies a year or on a daily basis. Every day that that hospital was open, 25 babies got delivered. In 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president uh, and undertook the whole New Deal initiatives, part of which was construction of that whole Jersey City Medical Center complex. He followed his cousin Teddy's lead, and he proposed to include publicly funded health care programs as part of the Social Security legislation. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he had to remove those provisions from the bill because of there was very strong opposition to compulsory health insurance from the American Medical Association and all state and local affiliates. So under Roosevelt, we got Social Security, but did not get health care reform, health care insurance. However, in the late 30s, uh, groups of hospitals, uh, again, because of their financial concerns, began to form their own not-for-profit uh, health insurance plans, and that was the evolution and the beginning of the Blue Cross plans. So we get to the beginning of World War II, and our entry into the war really kind of changed the dynamic, maybe inadvertently, but eventually it, it changed the dynamic of healthcare. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, it was an example of the law of unintended consequences. Um, in building up to support the war effort, Kaiser Steel built the first steel plant west of the Rockies in the middle of a desert in Fontana, California, I guess about 90 miles east of Los Angeles. Then they were faced with the problem of, uh, well, how do we hire and staff? Because being World War II, there were already wage and price controls in place, so they couldn't pay a higher wage rate than folks in L.A. were getting. And here they are sitting in the middle of the desert uh, trying to staff a steel plant. So what they came up with was uh, to provide health care on-site for their employees who moved to Fontana to staff the steel plant. Uh, Kaiser Steel is long gone, but Kaiser Permanente remains today. If that, that was the beginning of employer-sponsored health care coverage. And so we roll into the 1950s, and there's some evolution there as well, and, and maybe, maybe some looks at, the, at, at what universal coverage could be uh, from, from the likes of, of President Truman to start. But can yeah. you talk to us about some of the initiatives that were happening in that time frame? Sure. Uh, you know, Kaiser generally gets credit for the uh, birth of employer-sponsored health care. Uh, when Harry Truman became president following uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's death, uh, when he was reelected in 1948 against all odds, in 1949 he again uh, proposed universal health care as part of his Fair Deal program. So we had Franklin with the New Deal, uh, Harry Truman with the Fair Deal, but again in the face of unanimous and uh, strong opposition from the AMA, uh, he had to drop that proposal. In 1952, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, America's first five-star general, was elected president. And the Eisenhower years were best remembered as a, a time of uh, p relative peace and prosperity. Uh, he ended the Korean War, or it was a police action because the Congress never formally declared war. Uh, but during Eisenhower's years, we saw enormous growth in uh, employer-sponsored health care insurance. Uh, just one quick example. Uh, I came home from school, seventh grade, spring of 1951, and not feeling well. Uh, Dad got home from work, called the, our family doctor, who also happened to be a surgeon. He made a house call, came to the house, did some tests, says, you, you need your appendix taken out. Picks up the phone, calls over to San Francis Hospital about four blocks away, says, set up the OR, I'm bringing somebody in. So my dad walks me over to the hospital. Next thing I know, I wake up the next morning in the children's 12-bed children's ward, missing an appendix. 
But uh, it was a different era then. Uh, I ended up with a full seven-day stay after an appendectomy and was sent home uh, with instructions to remain on bed rest for five weeks before I could go back to school, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) But throughout the 50s, uh, what we saw, Eisenhower, his major contribution was the development of the uh, national highway system. But uh, throughout that period, we saw employer-sponsored health insurance grow. And since my dad was a member of the Newspaper Guild, uh, my appendectomy was covered by, the news, by the, his employer. So throughout the 40s and well into the 50s, you see this, this trend of employed people you know, picking up health care yep. insurance. But then you've got this whole segment of the population, the retired population. And by and the, the time we got to the 1960s, now there's an impetus to, to, to try to deal um, with that issue and, and get more people on health insurance. So uh, we might know the outcome of yeah. that, but, but talk to us about how that evolved and some of the dynamics. Well, the 60s were turbulent times on more than just the health care front, uh, uh, as, as you well know. Um, but after receiving my engineering degree in 1960, I went to work for a Fortune 500 chemical company. And early in 1962, they sent me out to Los Angeles to start up and run a uh, small chemical plant. Uh, those were interesting times to be in uh, California, Southern California in particular. The state had just implemented the nation's first Fair Employment Practices Commission, and I'm old enough to remember want ads that said Irish and Italians need not apply. But more importantly, L.A. County had just in- implemented the Air Pollution Control District to try and fight smog. So here, I, here I'm, a rookie 23-year-old engineer, uh, having to deal with all kinds of regulations with uh, emissions and whatnot, uh, that my senior folks back east had no clue about. So, <laughs> right. But uh, in October 1962, our first child was born at St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, California. And to my wife's dismay, while her friends back here in Jersey were enjoying five-day postpartum stays, she was sent home in two days. Uh, that was welcome to California. In 65, my second son was born at uh, Presbyterian Intercommunity Hospital in Whittier. Uh, we had bought a house and moved to Whittier. And again... And was sent home in two days. But what I remember most from that stay, I still have the bill. The total charges for mother and baby for two-day stay, $167. Now, to put it in perspective, at that time I was making about 200 bucks a week. But still, $167 in charges for a normal delivery is hard to, hard to believe these days. Yeah, hard to argue with, yeah. right? But I still have the bill. <laughs> and, of course, my employer paid 80%. I paid 20%. So that was... Uh, California. Third child was born in uh, Christ Community Hospital in Oakland, Illinois, uh, which is now part of Advocate uh, Health System, one of the bigger players in the Chicago area. Uh, but if, after I finished my MBA in finance there, the company moved me back to headquarters and I decided to put down roots and change jobs. Uh, went to work for what's now Deloitte. It was Haskins and Sells at the time in New York as a senior consultant, and uh, that's when I first got involved in in directly uh, assisting healthcare providers. But back to the 60s, uh, after Kennedy's assassination in 1963, Lyndon Baines Johnson became president. And while Kennedy was somewhat of a visionary, uh, Johnson was a mechanic. He knew how to work the Congress. He knew how to work the cloakrooms. And got an enormous amount of the new frontier legislation passed, including the Voting Rights Bill, the Civil Rights Bill, and uh, of of importance to us, uh, Title 18 Medicare, which was named after Canada's uh, pre-existing Health Care for All program, and Title 19 Medicaid, which now provided coverage for medically needy individuals throughout the country. 
Medicare was a federal program, uh, covered seniors, and so now also it was cost-based reimbursements, so and now seniors had coverage. And Medicaid was a federal and state program. In most cases, the feds paid 50%, state picked up the other 50% of the costs. So with the that expansion, uh, now all of a sudden, a, a much larger segment of our population didn't have to worry about care, especially seniors who had the, tend to be the higher users at the end of life uh, of, of health care systems. Of interest to uh, our folks in New Jersey, a little piece of health care trivia that you can dazzle your friends with, the first Medicare inpatient claim was paid here in New Jersey. It was processed by Horizon, what's now Horizon Blue Cross, and then they cut the check and drove it up the road to Jack Farmer, who was CFO at East Orange General Hospital. Uh, it was it actually made the five o'clock news. Welcome to Medicare. Well, there's there's nothing like some Jersey pride uh, in this story, so we <laughs> we appreciate that <laughs> uh, coming out of here in Princeton, New Jersey. So, um, John, that was uh, that was a great retrospect on sort of. A 30-year uh, period there as we're in the 20th century and, and healthcare is changing. Uh, I know you'll be coming back for part two, and we'll be talking about sort of a, a very changing environment where, where, co- where costs uh, begin to skyrocket, rate setting emerges, and and really a, a, a lot of different changes impact healthcare finance. So we're looking forward to that. Thanks, Mike. You bet, John. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Mike Passanante. Welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Today I'm joined again by John Dalton, who is an advisor emeritus here at Bessler Consulting and a longtime board member of St. Joseph's Healthcare System in Patterson, New Jersey. John joined us previously for a brief discussion on healthcare reform in the United States. And if you missed part one, we discussed the formation of Blue Cross plans in the 30s, the growth of employer-sponsored health insurance in the 40s, and the 1965 enactment of Medicare and Medicaid. Today we'll be covering the continuing evolution of healthcare coverage for Americans as well as the growing issues of access and affordability. So this is part two. John, welcome back. Hi, Mike. Nice to be back with you. So, John, we've kind of passed 1965 now, and and we've seen employer coverage for workers and their families begin. We've seen Medicare for seniors and Medicaid for the poor introduced. What issues arose as the system matured? Well, with the passage of and implementation of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, millions more Americans now had guaranteed access to health care. So as you can imagine, demand for services skyrocketed, but unfortunately so did costs. Uh, Medicare at the outset was pure cost reimbursement. Uh, whatever you spent on providing care to Medicare beneficiaries, you got back in reimbursement from the federal government. And it didn't take long for a lot of savvy financial types to figure out how best to make sure they were getting the most they could from the Medicare program. So with the costs skyrocketing, uh, the whole dynamics started to change. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, Richard M. Nixon was our president, uh, elected in 1968. In 1971, uh, as he finished his first term, he did propose a limited uh, health insurance reform. What he was looking for at that time was a private health insurance employer mandate. In other words, that there was mandated to get insurance, and that's a term you hear again uh, frequently as we move ahead through the uh, uh, through healthcare reform. He also talked about federalization of Medicaid for the poor with dependent minor children. In other words, 
relieve the state of the states of their burden for taking care of minor children of poor families. It, it got nowhere. However, he was able to enact the Social Security Amendments of 1972, major legislation, did two things. It extended Medicare coverage to those under 65 who've been severely disabled for more than two years or who have end-stage renal disease. Uh, So two very important changes to the Medicare program. It also gradually raised the Medicare Part A payroll tax from 1.1% in 1972 to up to 1.4%. 4-5% 4 5% in 1986, and I believe it's still at that rate today. So that was the funding for the expansion. On the national scene, uh, in 74, Nixon again proposed more comprehensive health insurance reform. Again, an employer mandate to offer private health insurance and replacement of Medicaid by state-run health insurance plans. Uh, the, that proposal included income-based premiums and cost-sharing. However, again, the AMA rose up and with strong opposition uh, prevailed, along with uh, seniors and labor who uh, were upset about the cost-sharing provisions in the proposal. So uh, Nixon's attempt to expand health care again fell short. In 1976, uh, Democratic presidential candidate Jimmy Carter proposed health care reform that included key features of Senator Ted Kennedy's universal health insurance plan. Uh, three years later, uh, Carter proposed a more limited proposal to support employer mandate to provide catastrophic-only coverage uh, and enhancement of Medicare by adding catastrophic coverage also. But that effort ended up being abandoned for a couple of reasons. One, the uh, the economy was starting to deteriorate, but two, costs were rising at an unacceptable rate. So that's the 1970s on a national perspective. The new dynamics here in New Jersey were similar but different. Uh, in 1971, under Re- Republican Governor William Cahill, uh, we were under pressure due to rising costs, and he enacted the Health Care Facilities Planning Act. That did two things. It established a certificate of need planning process that only needed facilities would be built, and it authorized the Departments of Health and Insurance to set inpatient rates for Blue Cross and Medicaid. So it was a bifurcated program that had two departments responsible for the rate setting and uh, same rates for Blue Cross and for Medicaid, Uh, somewhat uh, paradoxical. Initially, the Department of Health delegated the rate-setting process to the New Jersey Hospital Association, and a budget review process was set up, where basically the hospitals would submit their budgets to the Hospital Association, a panel of CEOs would review the budgets, and then the budgets would be approved and implemented. Uh, As you can imagine, there wasn't a lot of cost-saving happening. So two years into that process, the New Jersey Public Interest Research Group issued a blistering report. Briefly, it described the NJHA process as, quote, the fox guarding the chicken coop, unquote. Uh, That led to a public uproar, and the state was then directed to take over the rate-setting process. In 1974, uh, Haskins and Sells, which is now Deloitte, was awarded a contract by the state of New Jersey to design and implement a hospital inpatient rate-setting system. I was assigned as the project manager to get it done and was – showed up in Trenton to work for Sister Kathleen Maloney, a sister of charity and a CPA who was chief of the rate-setting program. She actually was the first in the order to uh, obtain a CPA and prior to joining the state had worked as controller at St. Elizabeth's Hospital 
St. Elizabeth's now is Trinitas Regional Medical Center. Uh, Sister Jane Frances Brady, the long-term CEO at uh, St. Joseph's in Patterson, was the second sister charity to obtain a CPA. So we had four, four months to get a system designed, train hospitals how to fill out cost reporting forms, build a computer system to process all of their input, and get rates out to the hospitals. It was a fast and furious four months. The system was called SHARE, Standard Hospital Accounting and Rate Evaluation. It's now Chapter 160 of the laws of New Jersey. Uh, we set inpatient payment rates for 108 acute care hospitals. None of them were happy with the rates, but there was an appeals process, and uh, at least we got cash flow rates flowing by mid-January. Hospitals complained that the system did not adequately reflect their uniqueness. Uh, that was a common refrain. Every hospital claimed to be unique, and you couldn't really evaluate them versus other hospitals. But uh, we developed peer groups, and they were pretty reasonable, and they're still in place today. But they advocated for change. So we looked at uh, some other options. As we had designed the, the first rate-setting system, we realized that it would not be uh, the be-all and end-all. Uh, and one of the things folks we talked to were the folks at Yale University. And I was in the room in 1976 when Professor John Devereaux Thompson and Robert Fetter from Yale came to talk to all of us at the Department of Health. And I clearly recall Thompson saying, quote, if General Motors can cost out cars, hospitals can cost out episodes of care, end quote. Uh, Thompson, by the way, was a nurse, not a, not a doctor, and he was elected to the Mountain Healthcare Hall of Fame in 1997 for his work on the development of DRGs. So then the great experiment began. We applied for a Medicare waiver, a Section 1115 waiver, to implement an inpatient payment system based for all payers based on diagnosis-related groups. The state got a $4 million grant, a Medicare waiver from the federal government, and enabling legislation, Chapter 83, uh, to, to move the program forward. So New Jersey began implementing the country's first ever inpatient prospective payment system where payment now is based per case and not on a per diem or other kind of rate. So the DRG system really scrambled the cost data, clinical data, and put it all together in looking at particular episodes of care. The initial system had 25 major diagnostic categories. That's still the case today, and a total of 383 DRGs. Today with the MS DRGs, I think the total number is more than, well more than double 383. Uh, and for several years in the late 70s, early 80s, New Jersey really was Camelot. Uh, the spotlight focused on New Jersey. That's where all the innovation was happening in healthcare finance and financial reform. So this, this was a major shift because now hospitals had an incentive to really look at how they deliver care, care protocols, and payment per case. You still had the yin and yang with the docs being paid on a fee-for-service basis, so they still got paid for making rounds on a daily basis to see their patients while they were in the hospital. So our focus on trying to trim length of stay was kind of running counter to the doctor's focus on making sure they maximized their cash. Uh, I can vividly recall in the early 80s working with some of the staff at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, uh, looking at some of the uh, uh, care protocols and lengths of stay, a total hip replacement at that time had an average length of stay of 18 and a half days. Ten years later, that length of stay was now four or five days. Uh, and today, uh, for folks without complications or comorbidities, uh, 
actually the uh, a total hip replacement can be in an overnight procedure. So. Wow. So how did that DRG experiment work out? Well, it, it's still – Medicare took it national in beginning in 1983, and Medicare still pays based on DRGs. The New Jersey experiment uh, had a flaw. Uh, as we developed the system, hospitals advocated very, very strongly to include both charity care, which is the can't pays, and bad debt, which is the won't pays, in the elements of cost. Um, that was a fatal error. Uh, by allowing hospitals to include bad debt in their costs, uh, the costs escalated beyond uh, what Medicare would have paid because the basis of the Medicare waiver was so long as Medicare is paying less under New Jersey's methodology than it would under its own reimbursement methodology, uh, the waiver would prevail, would continue. Uh, including bad debt ended up blowing the Medicare waiver. And so in 1989, we lost the Medicare waiver, and now it's an all-but-Medicare DRG system. And the uncompensated care add-on uh, ended up being the subject of litigation by one of the unions and their ERISA plans. And in 1993, uh, the entire uh, all-but-Medicare all DRG system was blown away. Uh, 1993, that was rate deregulation. Uh, now all of a sudden it was a free-for-all. Hospitals were free to set their own rates uh, in negotiations with insurance carriers. But that was the sad ending of the DR New, Jersey's, uh, New Jersey's stint as Camelot. <laughs> so, John, Medicare has now taken DRGs national. What other developments occurred uh, on, on the national scene that really impacted health care finance in the 1980s? There were a couple, uh, one uh, rather bizarre, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but in the early 80s, there were a lot of allegations of patient dumping and wallet biopsies as, as hospitals sometimes refused emergency services to patients. And 60 Minutes did a broadcast uh, entitled The Billfold Biopsy, uh, documenting in cases of patient dumping at Parkland Medical Center in Dallas. Uh, that provoked such an uproar that the Texas, legislator, Texas legislature passed a, a law requiring that hospitals treat and stabilize a patient before any transfer to another facility. Um, the uh, 20 other states followed Texas's lead, and in, in 1986, the Congress enacted the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, EMTALA, which we are very familiar with today. EMTALA had a couple of requirements. Uh, among others, it required that the patient be evaluated and stabilized before any transfer. It required that the hospital to which a stabilized patient was being transferred must accept the transfer. And it also required that adequate medical records accompany the patient. So EMTALA was a very important piece of legislation uh, still in, in, in uh, force today. The other major piece that happened in the 1980s was rather bizarre. In 1986, Reagan and the State of the Union address proposed expansion of Medicare to cover catastrophic illness. Simple proposal. Uh, it blew through the Congress with near-unanimous support. Congress enacted the legislation uh, so it would limit out-of-pocket payments to $2,000 a year for seniors. And the expanded coverage would be funded by a $4.92 per month Part A premium increase and higher premiums for seniors earning more than $35,000 a year. Didn't go over very well. Uh, a lot of uh, well-off seniors, I, I coined the term whoopies, well-off older persons uh, in my newsletter that I sent to clients and colleagues, uh, they rose up uh, and 
with strong opposition to the bill, Congress did a complete turnaround and with near-unanimous near eyes repealed the legislation a year later. Uh, for some reason, yuppies and thinks made it into the vernacular, but whoopies never got any traction. <laughs> so uh, we're now at uh, we're 1992, and uh, the governor who became president, Bill Clinton, kind of made a, a big deal about health care during his campaign. Can you talk to us about what happened after yeah. that campaign? Yes. Uh, in 1992, health care reform you, Broader access was part of uh, Bill Clinton's promise to the American people. And subsequent to taking office, uh, he appointed First Lady Hillary Clinton to head up a multifaceted task force to devise a plan to get America closer to universal health care. Well, Hillary convened a, a group of academics, executives from insurance, hospital and pharmaceutical industries, physicians, representatives of business and various policymakers, a group that came to be known as the Jackson Hole Group because the meetings were all held in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And over a period of several months, uh, these best and brightest uh, developed a, uh, a plan called Managed Competition to provide universal health care for all Americans. Uh, it was extraordinarily complex. It makes what we now call Obamacare look simple. Uh, so bogged down by complexity – and uh, by the opposition of America's health insurance plans, uh, the insurance lobby, the insurance lobby ran a very clever series of ads of a married couple at the kitchen table looking over the plan. Uh, and Harry and Louise uh, became very widely known. Uh, they created – they were more effective than Sarah Palin's death panels in killing the legislation. Uh, that set back health care reform for a full generation. John, great overview today. Appreciate it. We are looking forward to having you back for the final part in our series where you take us from the uh, Clinton administration up to present day, and it's been a, uh, a whirlwind probably for the last 20 years since then. So we're looking forward to having that discussion with you. See you next time. Hi, this is Mike Passanante. Welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Glad you could be with us. Today we're going into part three of our series looking at a brief history of healthcare reform. And to help us walk through that is John Dalton. John is an advisor emeritus here at Bessler Consulting and a board member of St. Joseph's Healthcare System in New Jersey. Welcome back, John. Nice to be here, Mike. So, John, in, in part two of our series, you highlighted the pioneering rate-setting efforts here in New Jersey that led to Medicare's adoption of per-case payment-based on DRGs. And we ended that podcast with President Clinton's failed attempt to move to universal health coverage. So today, we'll pick up the pieces and look at the often conflicting forces that led to the passage of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. So John, let's dive right in. What did you see as the major forces affecting healthcare providers during the 1990s? Well, the real story of the 1990s was the rapid growth of managed care organizations, both HMOs and PPOs. Uh, if you look at the, the data, uh, in 1993, about 100 million people were enrolled in managed care. By 1999, that had more than doubled. Uh, here in New Jersey, the uh, rapid care of managed care began in Burlington County with U.S. Healthcare's primary care gatekeeper model. Uh, a lot of us remember U.S. Healthcare, which was subsequently acquired by Aetna. They used to run some of the funniest ads uh, on TV. 
And those of us who were knowledgeable about U.S. healthcare used to joke that the only happy U.S. healthcare subscriber is one who's never had access benefits. But uh, <laughs> be, be that as it may, uh, it was the managed care tsunami that uh, overwhelmed the country and New Jersey. I can clearly remember some of my CFO friends bragging about the wonderful per diem rates that they had negotiated from some of the managed care organizations. And that only lasted a, a short period. The honeymoon was short. Uh, they soon realized that that five days that they billed at $1,000 a day came back to them as three days paid in full, one day downgraded to skilled nursing level of care, and day five denied. So instead of 5000 you got $3,500. Uh, but that was managed care's introduction in New Jersey. Uh, the other major uh, event in the, in the 1990s was the Institute of Medicine's publication to Err is Human, Building a Safer Healthcare System. That was published in 1999 and uh, reported that as many as 98,000 preventable deaths per year were occurring in America's hospitals. It was a much-needed wake-up call to the industry. Uh, prior to the publication of that report, um, getting hospitals to focus on quality and patient safety was fairly difficult. Uh, there were always conflicting uh, priorities, and this really got them focused. Now, all of a sudden, uh, as board members, we're starting to see data on central line-associated bloodstream infections, surgical site infections, catheter-associated urinary tract infections as part of our Board of Trustees dashboard. And literally, uh, since that report, we've seen significant progress made in quality and patient safety. So that's kind of a double whammy. Um, how, how did this all play out as we entered into the third millennium? Okay. So we entered the third millennium. Uh, George W. Bush was elected president of the United States in 2000, took office in 2001. Uh, he came up with the, uh, an idea of expanding uh, coverage for seniors uh, to prescription drugs. Uh, and in 2003, he signed into law the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act, uh, now known as Medicare Part D. Um, those of us that know described it as the Full Employment Act for insurers and big pharma. Because what that did was it all of a sudden handed the insurance industry millions and millions more claims to process, and that's where they make their money. And for the pharmaceutical companies, it guaranteed that they would be paid for the drugs that they supplied to seniors. But the act also prohibited the government from negotiating, uh, negotiating rates with the, the drug companies. So we're basically stuck with what uh, they want to charge for their, their drugs. So when we get to 2008, healthcare reform was a major issue during that presidential campaign. Can you talk about the options during that time and how did the U.S. eventually wind up with something closer to universal hmm. coverage? If you look back at the uh, 2008 presidential campaign, there were two distinctly different platforms. Uh, John McCain's proposals included tax credits of 2500 for individuals, 5000 for families who uh, do not subscribe to or have access to health care coverage through their employer. So that would help out the small businesses, those who don't have coverage through their employer. He also proposed uh, to help those denied for pre-existing conditions by working with states to create what he called a guaranteed access plan. The details were kind of sketchy, but that was the McCain-Palin platform. On the Democratic side, uh, Barack Obama called for creating a national health insurance exchange that would include private insurance plans and Medicare-like 
government-run option with coverage guaranteed regardless of health status, so away with pre-existing conditions. It would require parents to cover their children, but his plan included no requirement for adults to buy insurance. So basically, Obama's approach was somewhat pragmatic. So let's make sure every kid born in this country has health insurance coverage at birth, and then as they progress through life, you wind up with everybody covered. So it was a very practical approach. What we got was something quite different. Obama was elected in 2008, uh, took office in 2009, and health care reform was a major part of his platform, and he spent a lot of his uh, electoral credits in getting the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act enacted. Unlike the Democratic platform, this was modeled more on Massachusetts's Romney Care, uh, which included a full insurance mandate. Importantly, uh, the patient protection provisions, I think, are as important as the Affordable Care Act provisions. Everybody keeps calling it Affordable Care Act. The patient protection provisions went into effect early in the game, and they are having a positive and lasting effect on quality and patient safety throughout our hospitals. Um, The Affordable Care Act provisions are rolling out now with the insurance exchanges going online beginning in uh, 2013 and uh, more folks having health care coverage. So, John, the Republican majority in the House of Representatives has voted more than 50 times to repeal the Affordable Care Act, um, and they've made it sort of a major focus in the current presidential primary season. In your opinion, how likely is that to happen? Well, I think the Republican majority in the House of Representatives just proved Einstein's uh, theory of insanity. Uh, Whether you love it or hate it, what we call Obamacare is here to stay. Uh, There are a number of reasons why. As I mentioned about the patient protection provisions, quality is up throughout the country and infection rates are down. Between 2008 and 2013, central line infections are down by 46%. Those are the uh, most deadly infections that uh, a patient can can get. They're very expensive and they're they're deadly. Surgical site infections are down 16%, so post-op sepsis has been reduced materially. Uh, In... 2010, when we enacted the act, the pay, when we enacted the Affordable Care Act, 18.2 percent of Americans were uninsured. That number is now down to 10 percent, 10.4 percent at the end of 2014, and single digits now. Young adults are allowed to remain on their parents' policies until age 26. So more than two million young adults have gained coverage through that f- aspect of the act. I don't see anybody doing away with that. We're no longer subject to coverage denials due to pre-existing conditions, and when you get into your 40s, more than, f- more than half of all adults have pre-existing conditions. And we now can only have coverage rescinded when we misrepresent or uh, fraudulently misrepresent our conditions when we apply for insurance. The health insurance exchanges will not be going away. Accenture recently projected that by 2018, private exchanges will enroll more than 40 million Americans. And even with 22 states not participating in the Medicaid expansion, uh, Medicaid and CHIP have grown by nearly 11 million people. We have the ACA. It's here to stay. In your opinion, where where do we go from here? Well, the objective and... Uh, for this, I credit the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the organization founded by Dr. Donald Berwick, a Massachusetts pediatrician uh, who had great foresight. He served as uh, head of CMS during Obama's first term. 
uh, Berwick's Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, looks at healthcare globally, and they, uh, many of us have become familiar with the triple aim. The Affordable Care Act has bent the cost curve, but a lot remains to be done. Uh, we have the best equipped hospitals in the world, and we have the most thoroughly trained physicians. But our outcomes trail other developed countries, and that gap continues to grow. It's the subject of a, uh, probably another series of podcasts. Um, the triple aim is simply stated, we will work to improve, to provide better care for our patients, and that's something hospitals do quite well now, and they're getting better and better at it. That's our core competence, our core expertise. We're now being called upon to improve the health of the populations in the communities we serve, which is a bit of a stretch, but it's something that we have the leadership and competence to do. In order to achieve the triple aim, if we provide better care to our patients, find ways to improve the health of our populations, we can then finally lower the per capita costs of care. And that's where we need to go as we move from fee-for-service to pay-for-value. It's a stretch, but uh, I think we have in many places the leadership and the competence to get there. John, this was a, a great series. Your knowledge on the topic is, is so crystal clear and, uh, and, and so in-depth. We really appreciate you bringing that to us and, and to all the listeners of the Hospital Finance Podcast. Thanks for being on. You're welcome, Mike. Pleasure to be here. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler Consulting. 